Good afternoon, brethren. Glad to see so many of you here. I want to mention, brethren, I think that we here, we are the headquarters church of the living church of God. And I don't often make a special appeal to you, but I want to once in a while. I think I should. I have sensed through the years, and a lot of you older brethren know exactly what I mean, that we have lost, and I don't mean just here, but God's people around the world and the other Church of God fellowships and our other churches in general and so forth, we have lost the same amount of zest and zeal and a sense of excitement for the work that we used to have. And I remember back even in the 1950s when I first came to college and right after I graduated and we began to teach and so on, and Mr. Armstrong would get up and when he would even announce one new station, there would be applause. And we had a three-hour service, I'm saying three hours, and at the beginning there were no sermonettes. So Mr. Armstrong would talk on 30 or 45 minutes about the work. What was the work? It's a very tiny work. But if you would add one new station, they were excited. And he'd tell all the details about he got on the Sunset Limited train and went to Chicago, how he went, how he prayed to God for favors. He went up the elevator to the station manager's thing. And he said, I used to sit on your side of the desk, Blackie. I used to have an office right here in South LaSalle Street in the Loop in Chicago. And this program is different. We don't just give, say, give your heart to the Lord. We don't ask for money. And he would sell them on the program. And he would simply take a lot of time to tell about the work of God. And it was exciting. And we were tiny, but we were excited. And the work was not growing terribly fast back in those days because, as I've told you before, from the time we began, or Mr. Armstrong began in January 1934 until I graduated from college in June 1952, over 18 years, we only had three churches, and we had less than 200 members. But nevertheless, we were excited, and there was a sense of excitement, and finally God got it going and got it going. And I think if we get more of a sense of excitement, brethren, and zeal, right here at headquarters even, and pray fervently that God will inspire Mr. Ames and these other men doing the television programs, that God will inspire Dr. Winnale in running and directing the ministry, that God will inspire Mr. Crockett in directing the business affairs and other affairs, that God will inspire Mr. Apartian and helping and doing so many things in the international work and the French work, that God will inspire each one of us, that God will inspire, of course, Mr. Uh, O'Gwen on this Internet thing and help him, guide him, hold up his hands, open doors before him. If we start praying like that and get personally involved, God will hear our prayers. He will hear our prayers. And we need as the headquarters church to set the pace. And as we begin to do that and we say positive things to each other, and to the brethren around the world, uh, it's going to happen. And let me just say, it's already beginning to happen. I'm not talking about pie in the sky. As a lot of you know who work at headquarters, we already, over the last several months, not the last few days, over the last several months, we have had virtual records in the number of prospective members, go-tos, as we call them, sending in, writing in, calling in for visits. We have had a tremendous growth in the number of donors, We've had a tremendous growth in the number of co-workers and the charts they've given me even in the last few days are just shot way up. And I'm very, very grateful for that. And God Almighty has been blessing us even financially at the beginning of this year. 
Now, Mr. Ruddleston has tried to hold the lid on my enthusiasm. I refuse to let him do that, <laughs> saying, well, we've had a big, a big last half of the month last year, so the, the, the numbers may fall off somewhat. But, brethren, if you do our part, you do your part, and I do my part, and you pray fervently, and even here, many of us could give more. I'm going to try to dip somewhat into my savings, which I did more at the end of this last year, and I hope I can do this now above and beyond normal tithes and offerings. If we set the pace here and tell the brethren, our friends, let's get on the ball like we did in Mr. Armstrong's day, get excited, get this work going. We're going to have an impact on this world. And God can very easily get our income up to 12 or 15 percent for we've been running just 6 or 8 percent, as you know, for the last several years. And uh, just like this, we came out, as you may have heard, with $809 positive last year. <laughs> In other words, like nothing compared to the size of at least we had a little bit more than, than we had to spend. But uh, as Mr. Davis said, God always sends enough bills to cover the income. And that's the way it's been. And nevertheless, we are going to move. And it looks like God is, he sees things that are happening in the world more than we do. But you all know, most of you follow world events, and you know that right now today, the events in the Middle East are absolutely explosive. And we don't know which day or which hour the Israelis may attack Iran. I'm not going to say they will, but it's very possible and probable they've got their backs against the wall. They cannot afford to get Iran, let Iran get an atomic bomb. And if we don't do it, they're going to have to. That's going to cause an explosion over there. And uh, we know that all of these other things are blowing up over there. And we know that uh, in Europe things are happening. And behind the scenes they're putting together this United States of Europe more and more. We know the dollar keeps going down in general more and more. We know that we see so many indications that disease epidemics are going to be coming. We know that the malaise all around the world is affecting our pride and prestige. And the pride of our power has been broken more than ever before. And back in the 60s and 70s, as the older brethren know, and I could prove that to you, I would talk and I would send out letters saying we have more time. But I'm not saying that anymore. I'm not going to say it's the next three or four years but it could easily be within the next 7 to 12 years that the tribulation could begin, and it could begin earlier than that, and it could begin several years later than that. I'm not trying to set a date, but these things are happening. And even if it happens seven years from now, you young people, that seems like forever, but that seems pretty quick to those of us who've already lived 60 or 70 years. There's a lot of things starting to happen. The whole spectrum of prophetic events are moving together, and it's exciting to those of us who've been watching it for 30 or 40 or in my case, 57 years since I first came to college, 57 and a half years ago, and was reading the papers and hearing discussions in our bowl sessions and Bible studies even back then. It's happening. So let's get excited. Let's get excited. And let's pour out our prayers to Almighty God to ask Him to move us, to stir us, to bless the work. Somewhere on this earth is the work of God that's going to have an impact on the world. It doesn't have to be a huge church of millions of people. God can use a smaller group to do it. We've been doing it thus far, but we are beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel that God's beginning to open up a lot more opportunities. So let's pray about that fervently, brethren. I ask you to do that, and we'll certainly keep it posted if we get on Daystar, and I ask you to pray about it a lot, and let's get a sense of excitement. Let's go, let's go, let's do it, and pray fervently that God will help us to move forward and do our part to pray harder, to encourage one another, to give more generously as we're able, and encourage our brethren 
to and those we talk to on the phone and contact with. Certainly, if we build this zeal for God's work and God's coming kingdom in the church, that's a good thing. Thank you, Dr. Meredith, and good afternoon, everyone, and greetings to all our brethren and ministry around the world. We hope you're enjoying a beautiful Sabbath. We just had a very inspiring announcement session by Dr. Meredith here, for those of you who are around the world, and he announced the various open doors and wonderful opportunities that may come in the future, so we hope you'll be praying about that. We're very excited about those new opportunities. Seven weeks from tomorrow night, we keep the Passover. We traditionally examine ourselves before the Passover. We pray for realistic evaluations of our character, evaluations to see what we need to change, and our sins and our weaknesses. Then we have a greater understanding when we do that of the need for the Passover. We'll be hearing more sermons on Passover preparation, but one of the ways that we can examine ourselves is to review the lessons of life that we've learned. We've learned lessons through education. We've learned lessons through pain and suffering and through persecution and through experience. So today, let's examine some lessons of history. Let's examine how we should learn personal lessons. And let's see what lessons we should learn. And the title of the sermon is Learning Lessons. Our children need to learn lessons, and God wants us to teach our children. We teach them discipline, we teach them truth, we teach them God's way of life. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter. Here we have the mission, the national purpose of Israel, which, of course, Israel failed. But we, as spiritual Israel, need to apply these lessons and put them into our lives, practice in our lives, Deuteronomy 4, and start with the verse 9. The previous verses give that mission to the church, that is to nation of Israel, that is to keep God's commandments, and they didn't do that. But here in verse 9 of Deuteronomy 4, God tells us, Only take heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen. Most Leaders of history and of nations have forgotten the lessons of history. Lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen. Of course, they've seen God's great miracles and deliverance through the Red Sea and many other miracles. Unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, but teach them. But teach them your sons and your sons' sons, your grandchildren as well. Especially the day that you stood before the Eternal, your God in Horeb. When the Eternal said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me. What should we learn? One of the things we've learned, need to learn, is a godly reverence, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. That you may learn to fear me all the days that you shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. So we need to teach our children. What do we teach them? We teach them the Ten Commandments. We teach them honesty, I hope. We teach them about God and creation, how to love the family, how to love neighbors, how to love friends. We also teach them skills because we want them to be productive. We teach them music. I hope some of our children have music lessons. 
perhaps the gymnastics, if some have that skill, or sports skills or computer skills. Uh, today's Charlotte Observer on the front page had a title, something along the lines of Second Life, Real Lessons in Surreal uh, Computer uh, Website called uh, Second Life, sponsored by the Mecklenburg Library System. I took uh, piano as a boy for two years, and uh, so I think it was around third and fourth grade, and it benefited me to this day. I just sit down at the piano to kind of relax, and thankfully my wife likes that. Um, the piano teacher, I don't think, was a good teacher because I would look at the music, and she thought I was reading the music. I never learned to read the music. I just memorized the piece and played it and looked at the music, and she thought I was reading it. So I was not that successful a, a pianist uh, growing up. Uh, my parents tried me, uh, taught me to, or gave me lessons in the trumpet and cornet, and I didn't like that very much. And there, of course, today, the soccer moms who are taking their children out to a uh, soccer field, which soccer happens to be one of the best sports for children, uh, physical education, less harmful on the joints, and this type of thing. Uh, at the YMCA, where uh, Dr. Meredith and I work out, I was noticing the other day they have little toddlers. They must be about two or three years old with little tiny basketballs. And here are these little two- and three-year-olds are trying to learn how to dribble the basketball and shoot. And it's just, to me, it's very warming and encouraging to see that. Then, of course, uh, years ago, of course, that can be overdone, uh, Time magazine had on its cover a two-year-old playing the cello. And, of course, the uh, lesson was that there was a educational track for Ivy League, and you had to teach your two-year-old a cello or something of that nature in order to be on a track that you would get to the proper preparatory schools and then finally get into the Ivy League. And I remember one uh, mother just crying, to, oh, my child can't get into this particular school at, at age two. He won't be able to go to an Ivy League college. So it was well overdone, you can tell, in terms of, of expectations. But nonetheless, there is an old proverb, he that fails to teach his son a trade teaches him to steal. And I hope that we can teach our children and uh, young uh, boys and girls uh, trades and skills. We have elementary school here in the United States, middle school and high school, college, university. We've uh, learned more recently that homeschooling in Germany is under attack, that uh, children are being taken away from their parents if they don't send them to the local schools. Deuteronomy 6, and uh, let's turn over the page here to Deuteronomy 6, and uh, verse 6 again. Uh, God gives us the basic principles and the great laws of love. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, The eternal our God is one eternal, and you shall love the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. You have internalized them. You have learned them. They are a part of your character, your nature. That's who and what you are. That's how you live. And you shall teach them diligently unto your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. These are some of the ways we teach, and hopefully our younger generation learns those lessons. There are also the lessons of history. 
in the uh, latest church update, the weekly update, uh, Dr. Uh, Winnale wrote, several of us were able to attend a lecture on U.S. foreign policy in Europe and the Middle East at Davidson College, just north of Charlotte, given by Ann Applebaum, a journalist who writes for the Washington Post. It was interesting to hear her assessment of America's position in the world and to note what she does not see. We went up there Wednesday night, and it was very interesting. Her topic was democracy promotion in 1956 and 2006. What did America learn in half a century? And it was quite an interesting indictment of our intelligence service, our leadership. In one sense, we could say that... uh, The United States and post-Saddam Iraq has sent mixed signals about support for democratic institutions. See, 1956 was significant because it was the time of the Hungarian Revolution. And Radio Free Europe was saying to the Hungarian freedom fighters, uh, we will support you, where uh, the president at the time was saying, we're going to not intervene, Uh, we will support uh, the uh, Soviet Union leadership. So we sent mixed signals, and the United States has followed that same pattern for the, at least the last 50 years since that uprising in Hungary in 1956. Uh, these mixed signals reduce America's credibility in the eyes of other nations and work against the interests of American fo- foreign policy. In other words, <laughs> after uh, Ms. Applebaum's uh, lecture, she, her husband is a former defense minister for the nation of Poland, so she had access to declassified information uh, showing, by the way, that uh, Russia had uh, targeted uh, Western cities in Europe even during the Cold War. But what have we learned in 50 years? Uh, Simply one word, uh, that is my evaluation, nothing. In all of those years, we should have learned something, but we haven't. Dr. Lynn Torrance and 1961 wrote an article I hope that you could all read, uh, those of you who are interested in history, but it's not only the matter of interest in history, it's how God has intervened in history. The book, the title of the article was Hitler's Seven Fatal Blunders. That was in the July 1961 Plain Truth magazine. Uh, One of those blunders was uh, concerning Dunkirk, when the Germans had 338,000 British expeditionary forces, that is, military troops and a coalition force, trapped in northwestern France and could have totally captured them. However, Hitler blundered, and he said he did not want the tank commanders to have the glory of capturing them. He wanted the Luftwaffe, uh, who were close to him and the Nazi party, to attack the British expeditionary force and to give them the credit and the glory. Well, God intervened, and there were cloud covers, so the Air Force was unable to attack. And in the meantime, there was that other second great uh, miracle of the calm waters and the seas that uh, Mr. Meredith has written about in the new booklet, uh, Prophecy Fulfilled, God's Hand in World Affairs. I hope you've all read that. And here was this calm sea. And so while the forces were held back by Hitler... These 338,000 troops were able to disembark and uh, find uh, refuge in England. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. It would be a different world. It would be a different uh, international 
structure of government. But uh, I don't believe that parallel to America's failure to learn historic lessons that the beast power will not make the same mistake the next chance or the next time an attack on uh, Britain takes place. I hope you've all read the uh, Tomorrow's World magazine, the latest uh, issue, well, the current issue, I should say, uh, Lessons of History. When we look at the lessons of history, we realize that all the great empires are not here. That is, Babylon is no longer here, and then the Medo-Persian Empire is no longer here, and the Greco-Macedonian Empire failed, and the Roman Empire fell eventually, and Edward Gibbon wrote his book on the uh, decline and fall of the Roman Empire and the causes of it. So when we review these lessons of history, we should learn something from it. Will and Ariel Durant, <clears throat> and I quote, uh, quote that in the book, but this is, and I'm glad we had the right page, it is page 81, uh, from the lessons of history by Will and Ariel Durant, and also quoted this on the telecast here recently in Armageddon, I believe. And this is chapter 11, History and War. War is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization or democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. So our civilization is not a civilization of peace. It is a civilization of war. Of course, as Paul wrote in Romans, the way of peace they know not, Romans 3, it is because they have no fear of God before their eyes. And we as the God of Israel, that is, we worship the God of Israel, and as the people of Israel, the church of Israel, uh, the spiritual Israel, we need to fear God, and we have learned that lesson. Durant and uh, his wife continue, we have acknowledged war as a present, at present, the ultimate form of competition and natural selection in the human species. Palomos Patar Panton, said Heraclitus, war or competition is the father of all things, the potent source of ideas, inventions, institutions, and states. There is a true value. War is the basis of all good ideas and the progress of humanity. Have historians learned the right lessons? Well, Heraclitus apparently did not. Peace is an unstable equilibrium which can be preserved only by acknowledged supremacy or equal power. So the lessons of history teach us that uh, war is continues and there have only been few years of peace in Americans and the world history. There are also the lessons of Judah and Israel. Israel went into captivity in 721 B.C. Why? God had sent prophets to warn them, but they committed idolatry and they committed Sabbath-breaking. Those were the two major sins and reasons for which they went into captivity to Assyria, and they became the ten lost tribes. And the kingdom of Judah went into Babylonian captivity in a series of captivities starting in 604 and ending with the destruction of the temple in 586 in Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar was God's instrument 
in punishing Judah. And they didn't learn the lessons. They went into captivity. You want to read about the lessons that Israel and Judah did not learn. Read Psalm 106 and Psalm 107. Read Hebrews, the third chapter, and part of uh, the fourth chapter. They did not learn those lessons. And so we will have to relearn those, Jeremiah 30 and verse 7, that this is the time of Jacob's trouble that is coming soon. Let's turn to the fourth chapter of Daniel. I started to say the fourth chapter of Nebuchadnezzar, but it's the fourth chapter of uh, Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar, after he had taken Judah into captivity, was to learn a great lesson. God used him, and he should have learned and given credit to God. Daniel, the fourth chapter, after Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of a great tree, and the tree was chopped down, and but it was to grow once again. Interestingly enough, there was a political cartoon some years ago showing a tree stump in the form of a swastika with a little leaf starting to grow out of it, almost very parallel to the dream uh, given here in uh, Daniel, the fourth chapter. Daniel 4 and verse 25. Daniel gives the interpretation of this dream. They shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, or seven years, till you know what lesson was it that he needed to learn. What lessons do you need to learn that you have not yet learned? He was going to learn a very lasting lesson, but is going to be a long, painful one. Till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. Because Nebuchadnezzar did not acknowledge God. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, your kingdom shall be sure unto you, after that you shall have known that the heavens do rule. Then, of course, Daniel then appeals to the king, well, king, repent, change your ways. And that's what we are trying to do in fulfilling God's commission and warning the Western nations to repent, change your ways. Nebuchadnezzar was given that opportunity, but he didn't heed. He didn't listen and take uh, seriously what Daniel said. Wherefore, O king, verse 27, let my counsel be acceptable unto you, And break off your sins by righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of your tranquility. And then again, uh, here was this uh, voice from heaven in verse 32. Again, it says in the middle of verse 32, And seven times shall pass over over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. Now, did Nebuchadnezzar learn anything from that? Verse 37. (laughs) Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, I know personally, he is able to abase. You imagine just being seven years out in the field and having uh, your nails grow like like an animal? That's what Nebuchadnezzar was like for seven years. He learned a very serious lesson and a lasting lesson. 
George Santayana, you know the famous quote. And, of course, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way. Hopefully, we won't have to learn the hard way. George Santayana was a Spanish-born American philosopher, poet, and humanist. Uh, he lived from 1863 to 1952. I think most of you know the quote about history. Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. You know where I first saw that quote? The concentration camp entrance at Dachau, outside of Munich. And, of course, the communities, the Jewish communities, don't want the world to forget that lesson. The Holocaust was horrendous, but will pale, of course, in comparison to the Great Tribulation. And truly, humans will not learn the lessons of history. Mr. Herbert Armstrong commenting on what we should learn, Mystery of the Ages, pages 156 and 157, said this, quote, Man built his world on self-sufficiency without God. God set in motion a master plan for accomplishment of his purpose, consisting of a duration of 7,000 years. Satan was allowed to remain on earth's throne for the first 6,000 years. God purposed that man must learn his lesson and come voluntarily to accept God's way and character. Well, God purposed that man must learn his lesson. We have the big picture. We have the overview. We know that there is a white throne judgment, and there is going to be an opportunity for those who have not learned their lessons over 6,000 years. Mr. Armstrong continues, For nearly 6,000 years, mankind has been writing that lesson. But even at this late hour, he has not yet learned it. He has not yet given up his own self-centered way and come to accept God's way to his ultimate happiness. God is letting the law of cause and effect take full toll. Man's society, deceived and misled by Satan, has not even yet brought man to admit failure of his course of self-sufficiency. Today, man's world is reeling on its last legs. We should be learning the lessons. If the world doesn't learn them, if nations don't learn them, if statesmen don't learn them, if political analysts don't learn the lessons of history, we, brethren, need to learn the lessons. We can learn so that we don't have to suffer the same pain, the same bloodshed, the same unhappiness and agony. Let's turn to Daniel, the fifth chapter, Daniel 5, uh, just over a page from where you were, perhaps. Daniel 5, starting with verse 18. We saw the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar should have learned. Well, his descendant, Belshazzar, was leader over the great empire of Babylon. And you know the story of the handwriting on the wall. That's here in Daniel, the fifth chapter. And the night that it occurred, and here was this disembodied hand writing meeny, meeny, tekel, you farson, up on the wall. And King Belshazzar wanted to know the meaning of it, so he called in Daniel the prophet. And Daniel said to him, verse 18, Daniel 5, O you king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, or ancestor, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he slew, and whom he would keep alive, he would, he kept alive. 
and whom he set up, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. But, and here's the lesson, but when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was like the wild asses or donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Again, till he knew, till he learned that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appoints over it whomsoever he will. Now, Belshazzar should have, should have learned the lessons of history, but did he? What did Daniel say to him? Verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You knew what happened in history. You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, your ancestor. And yet you, as the king over this great empire, have not humbled yourself and recognized God. And so that night, of course, says in verse 30, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. So Belshazzar didn't learn the lesson, but hopefully we can avoid pain and suffering because we learn the lessons ourselves. We have to make sure that we're examining ourselves and taking action when we need to take action. So we can learn the lessons of history. Belshazzar should have known better. He did not apply the lessons learned by Nebuchadnezzar and he paid the penalty. So, brethren, let's make sure we ask God to help us learn from our mistakes and not have to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. I just want to uh, quote from one, uh, one section of the article on the lessons of history, and this is really a classic quote by G.W.F. Hegel, and I'll just read from the article here. Uh, My friends, history and the Bible have demonstrated over and over that when nations reject the God of creation, they will be judged. Will our Western world continue its rejection of biblical truth? The philosopher G.W.F. Hegel observed, quote, What experience and history teach us is this, that people and governments never have learned anything from history or acted on principles deduced from it. It's a remarkable quote. What experience and history teach is this, that people and governments never have learned anything from history or acted on principles deduced from it. Well, what should we? If nations won't learn, what should we learn? Are we learning individually? What spiritual lessons should we learn? Well, the whole Bible, of course, but let's touch on a few of them. Let's turn to John, the 8th chapter, John 8. At core of our very nature and identity is what Jesus said here in verse 32 of John 8. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He had sermons on treasure the truth, live the truth, and rejoice in the truth. God gives us that as a gift. But he tells us in verse 31 that if we want to know the truth, we need to do this. Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, verse 31, If you continue in my word, if you practice my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And of course, I hope you understand your identity, who you are. 
one of the identities you have is that of a disciple, a student, a learner of Christ. Then are you my disciples indeed, Jesus said. What else should we learn? There are many things, of course, that we should learn. Let's turn just over the page here to uh, chapter 14, John, the 14th chapter. Alvin Toffler, who's the author of Future Shock, The Third Wave, The Power Shift, War and Anti-War, and some other books, said this, quote, The illiterate of the 21st century will will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And, of course, that applies to those who've grown up in a society that taught evolution and have had an evolutionary background, and it's difficult for them to unlearn. And those who've grown up with the myths of some of the false doctrines in mainstream Christianity... It has been difficult for them to unlearn some of the falsehoods that are taught as uh, Christian doctrine. Mr. Herbert Armstrong said long with Alvin Toffler something similar, and he said it before Alvin Toffler, I have often said that it is much more difficult to unlearn an erroneous supposed truth than it is to learn a new truth. That's from Mystery of the Ages uh, in the author's statement. Here in John 14, verse 6, we realize what we need to learn spiritually. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and I am the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. This is the core center of our life, as it says in Colossians 3. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you appear with him in glory. Jesus Christ is our life, but he is the truth and the way, and the life. And in uh, John the 11th chapter, where he talked about Lazarus, he said, I am the life and the resurrection as well. We also need to learn and are practicing the new covenant. And what is that? Not the false doctrine that uh, a former association uh, taught, but that is writing God's laws on our hearts and on our minds, which is brought out in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. What else should we learn? Tithing principles. I won't turn there, but Deuteronomy 14 and verse 23, tithing principles and tithing laws. Deuteronomy 17, um, principles of governing, where kings were instructed to write down by hand. They had to copy the law by hand. And those of us who took the old correspondence course, Ambassador College Bible correspondence course, were instructed to write out the answers by hand. And it seems by that kind of biofeedback, you learn. It becomes internalized. Not that you can't learn uh, any other way through computers and uh, other ways. There are many methods of learning. Deuteronomy 18.9, avoid wicked customs. We also need a vision of the future. Let's turn to Isaiah 2, Isaiah the second chapter. We heard in the sermonette about lessons from the Feast of Tabernacles. Every year at the feast we get a vision or a renewed vision of the kingdom of God coming on earth and God's plan of salvation. So we need to have that vision and renew that vision. Isaiah 
2, and verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Eternal's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and come, come you, and they'll say, come you and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. We are going to be a part of that educational system. One of the three mandates that Mr. Herbert Armstrong gave years ago was learn to teach. And as kings and priests, we will be teachers. And we will be a part of that system. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations. And we will not have an impotent United Nations that uh, tries to coordinate or solve problems in the world. We will have the Prince of Peace. The government will be upon his shoulders. And he will judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What should we learn? Peace. What should we not learn? War. They will not learn that anymore. Our latest uh, Tomorrow's World magazine, also Dr. Winnell's uh, article in here, is Swords into Plowshares. There is, of course, the statue that is there in uh, uh, New York, uh, right outside the United Nations. And then there's a statue also, I think the original one, uh, in Moscow, where uh, we saw that uh, in 1988, where you... Take a sword and you beat it into a plowshare. We look forward to those days. What else should we learn? We need to be conscious of our identity. As I said before, we are ambassadors for Christ. Remember uh, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 20. We need to learn the lessons of government. Mr. Herbert Armstrong said this in... Uh, Mystery of the Ages, page 201. Now, why the church? This is in the section, Mystery of the Church. Now, why the church? Christ came also to call out selected and chosen one from Satan's world to turn from Satan's way into the way of God's law and to qualify to reign with Christ when he comes to replace Satan on the throne of the earth. Those called into the church were called not merely for salvation and eternal life, which you've been hearing from this pulpit, but to learn the way of God's government and develop the divine character during this mortal life in the church age. One of the purposes of the church is so that God's people can learn the way of government, which they are going to be practicing in the kingdom that is coming. Mr. Meredith's sermon last week, what is your breaking point? He said, Christ is watching. Who is he going to use in his government? One of the basic lessons and distinctives of the living church of God is that we are practicing God's way of government. Mr. Meredith said, those who are unwilling to trust him to govern his church today, those who are unwilling to work together, those who are unwilling to trust him to straighten out problems and get their feelings hurt, think about it. Christ is alive And he is testing. He is watching each of us along the way. 
We need a depth of humility, he said, that we must have to be in God's kingdom. If you get the other attitude of self, then you'll be like Saul. And then he gave the example of King Saul, remember, in 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter, who decided he would go ahead with the sacrifice before Samuel, the prophet, came. And Samuel had to tell him that in uh, 1 Samuel 15, uh, I don't have the exact verse, but he said that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And, of course, we, we want to be cooperative with God's government and not fall into that trap. There's another lesson, of course, in that story of Samuel and Saul, and that is we need to take responsibility for our actions. Uh, Saul did not take responsibility for his actions. And we have people in God's church who are like Saul. He said, but the people, verse 21 of 1 Samuel 15, Saul said, but the people took the best of the cattle and so forth. And then Adam said, the woman, she, she was uh, was responsible for taking of the apple. Then Eve said, the serpent, he. You know, she uh, blamed the serpent. Are we taking responsibility for our own actions? I remember a sermon years ago by Dr. Charles Dorothy, I think it was at the Feast of Tabernacles around 1963 or 62, or maybe even 64 in Big Sandy, not 62. But he was talking about the disease of Yabaditis. I know some of you know about this disease of Yabaditis. It's it's self-justification. When God says you should do something, some of us say, yes, but, or put it in the vernacular, yeah, but. And that's the disease of yabbatitis. And uh, Dr. Dorothy said, Now, brethren, you need to solve this disease of yabbatitis. Brethren, you need to get off your butts. So I think some of us uh, remember that time. I hope that didn't offend anyone, but that's what he said. (laughs) And uh, I remember another sermon by Dr. Dorothy. Uh, uh, At that time, we had the Feast uh, Convention Building, we had this huge stage, so the speaker was sitting on a chair on the stage. And uh, when he was introduced, he got up out of the chair, came to the microphone, and gave a sermon I'll never forget. And he said, Brethren, the sermon for today is but one word. Repent! And he went back and sat down in the chair. I won't forget that. But brethren, that's a message for you. It's a message for me today as well. We all need to repent. And of course, we need to examine ourselves to make sure that we've repented of human nature, our human nature, my human nature. We repent of our sins of omission. When, as Paul said, the things that I would, I do not. He should have done something and omitted it. It's a sin of omission. And the things that I don't, shouldn't do, I do. It's a sin of commission. So we need to repent of those sins. And I think all of us need to examine ourselves because we have brethren not just here but uh, in around the world who have habitual sins. It may be a habit of uh, 
over drinking. It may be drug abuse. It may be addiction to pornography, particularly on the Internet. And we need to repent of those sins. We need to change. This is the time to make some drastic changes, and particularly before the Passover that is just seven weeks away. Well, those are some of the lessons that we should learn. We have a great high priest in heaven, Christ, whoever lives to make intercession for us. And when we confess our sins, when we're determined to repent and change, then we can have that forgiveness, we can have that grace, and we can have happiness. Let's turn to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. So we have vision of the future. We look for the time when swords will be beaten into plowshares, and we will teach them the way to peace. They will not learn war anymore. But nations and statesmen have not learned the lessons of history, at least learned them enough to change. In Psalm 34, verse 11, it says, Come, you children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That is the acknowledgement of who and what God is, to revere Him, to stand in awe of Him. As we brought out a couple weeks ago, there are wonderful promises and blessings that come with that reverence. The angel of the Lord, verse 7, encamps round about them that fears Him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in Him. Fear the Lord, you His saints, for there is no want, no lack to them that fear Him. So we need to teach, we need to learn, we need to learn God's character. Let's turn to Romans 8, verse 29. Romans 8, and verse 29. We are being transformed. It's a transformation process. And if someone sees you, do they see, in essence, the character of Christ? Romans 8, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, to be conformed to the image of his Son. We have to be like Christ, as we heard in the sermonette, that we need to practice Matthew, the seventh chapter, the put in the words of Christ that we're like building our home on a solid foundation because we're practicing His words. But we are conformed to the very nature and the mind and the character and the heart of Christ. We have to learn the mind of Christ. This was a point in Mr. Meredith's sermon last week when he said, quoted Philippians 2.3, he said, people have selfish ambition. They want their own way. They don't get their own way. They get their feelings hurt. Mr. Meredith said, here is the big lesson. Try to have the mind of Christ in this respect. And he spells it out. Christ was pretty important. He had the highest office in the universe except for the Father. He gave up all and came to die on the cross for you and me. That was his mind, a total emptying of himself to give, to help, to serve. So have the mind of Christ. So in summarizing this section, we are learning the truth and we're learning God's character. 
If you know want to, if you want to learn more, of course, there are the tape library from our sermons. We have Sermon 124 example talking about lessons is lessons from Queen Esther. Number 160 is lessons of suffering. Uh, 302 is lessons from Paul. Uh, number 323, lessons from the Milwaukee tragedy. Uh, sermon number 343, learn servant leadership. So we need to learn these lessons and learn, as we heard in the sermonette, the lessons from the Feast of Tabernacles in 2006. As uh, Mr. Amen said, we need to do what we were told at the feast. So I hope, brethren, that we've learned at least one lesson in the past, and I would suggest if there's anything that comes to your mind during this sermon that is a profound spiritual lesson that you've learned, write it down. If it's a practical lesson that you've learned, write it down. If it's a lesson you need yet to learn, write it down, either practical or spiritual. And, of course, there are practical lessons of life. And I know you know my personal lessons that I've learned from the past. I first started writing down lessons when about 1996 when we had a Taurus Ford uh, lease car. And I would always put the briefcase in the trunk of my car, but the trunk would not always go up high enough. And as I put the briefcase into the trunk, my, I bumped my head on the trunk lid. And I guess the next time I assumed that the trunk lid would, would automatically rise up, but it would only go up so far, and I would uh, bump my head again. And I had to finally write down in my little week-at-a-glance book here, in a lesson uh, 96-242, or whatever it may have been, don't bump your head on the Taurus trunk lid. Now, some of us are a little hard-headed, and it takes a while for us to learn, you know, various lessons. I've already written down a couple for 2007 in my 2007 week-at-a-glance, and... Uh, Lesson number one, 2000, I'll share that one with some of these I put in code, you know, so if someone finds it, you won't know what the lesson is. But this one I'll share with you, uh, lesson 0701, review the lessons of 06. Mm, okay, uh, oh, another one here. Don't lose your password. There's another one, lesson four. <laughs> and uh, this is, a, I have a few that I can share with from 06 here. Um, uh, never assume, 06-11. Uh, and uh, you have to double check. You just don't assume. You get into trouble. Uh, number 12 here, 06-12. Don't challenge the elements. I went out in the cold, you know, you go out in the 20 degrees below zero, well, that, that's not going to affect me. Well, it does. Don't challenge the elements. And uh, predetermine <laughs> pre your limits. Well, of course, we teach our young teenagers to do that, so they predetermine their limits when they're out dating. But this was predetermine your limits when it comes to food. So uh, that's something that I hope I can learn. But those are lessons. There are many other types of practical lessons. There are financial lessons. Maybe some of us have learned, Malachi 3.8, that when I quit stealing from God, my life began to improve and began to prosper. And I've seen that 
and some of our church members, and they've learned that lesson. Psalm 1, you know, whatsoever he does shall prosper. Those who are meditating on God's law day and night. Ephesians 4:28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. And then there are the lessons of exercise. The other day I was lifting weights. I was trying to go from 15 pounds to 20 pounds to 25 pounds, and I strained uh, one of my rotator cuff. So you have to learn certain lessons in uh, exercise. There are work-related lessons, entertainment lessons, abundant life and true values. I've shared with this with you before, but I remember Mr. Meredith giving a sermon in San Diego one time encouraging our brethren to take advantage of all the free activities that were available in the San Diego area. And, uh, of course, the song that many of us remember from the golden oldies, The Best Things are in Life Are Free by George Olson. The moon, I won't try and sing it. The moon belongs to everyone. The best things in life are free. The stars belong to everyone. They gleam there for you and me. The flowers in spring, the robins that sing, the sunbeams that shine, they're yours, they're mine. And love can come to everyone. The best things in life are free. And there are other lessons uh, such as dining and diet and eating. And I think it was the year before this, back in 05, where I said, don't, don't eat too much salsa and chips because salsa, I love salsa and it, I almost drink it. And I had a, but my, my stomach had a bad reaction to it. And so have I learned the lesson? Well, last night <laughs> I wanted to have a snack before going to bed. And I, there's some chips and salsa. My wife bought this salsa. It was called, uh, Green Mountain Gringo Salsa, hot. It said hot. And then she put another label on top of it, extremely hot. But I took just little portions of the salsa and chips, and I had no negative reaction. I had learned my lesson over these two or three years. And sometimes it takes two or three years to learn some of those lessons. But once you learn the lesson, you can enjoy it. I enjoyed that extremely hot salsa with the chips, and uh, my stomach had no negative reactions. There are lessons we need to learn in relationships, and I think one of the biggest simple helps that has helped me in my relationships is being able to say I'm sorry. And it seemed like I started making a lot of mistakes. I think God knew I was going to say I'm sorry, so he let me make mistakes so I could say I'm sorry, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, to all my friends. Uh, So... Relationship lessons are very valuable. And uh, as God says, return good for evil. How do you handle an insult? Now, again, I found it's very helpful just to say thank you. You know, you, you're you uh, obnoxious, you're uh, vain. Well, thank you. It, it solves a soft answer turns away wrath, uh, Proverbs 15, verse 1. And so just a simple answer just stops arguments like that. Just say thank you. I think one of the most common the phrases in our household is thank you. <laughs> I'm not implying. <laughs> I am not.
not implying there are a lot of insults in our household. Okay. In fact, I was really surprised, I think it was the day before yesterday, and uh, Catherine uh, said, uh, I want to talk to you. I said, "Uh uh-oh. She said, uh, oh, really, uh, can you just tell me one thing I need to improve upon? Oh, wow, that's special. And I said, uh, immediately I can. But, uh, <laughs> but I tried to be gentle, but it was very, very helpful. I still have yet to return the favor. I hope to do that uh, this week. And I tried to give her some encouragement and an area of growth that would be helpful to her. There are other relationship uh, lessons we need to learn, too, and, and one that I've had to learn over the years is that some people are very sensitive. You know, being in the Army and, you know, you're, you're rough and you're strong and tough, you take orders and so forth. And I remember it was a, a lecture I was giving in a class one time, and I was used to hard-hitting, big-shoulder men who could take straight talk. And I must have said something that hit her nerve or come across a little too critical, and, and one of the young ladies in the uh, audience started crying. Uh-oh, people do have sensitivities. What do you know? I didn't realize that. You know, you have to understand that we have all different personalities. And some people are real, can take it tough. Uh, others, you just say boo, and they cry. Uh, so you have to understand the differences in personalities. Let's turn to Proverbs 28, verse 18. Again, this is a practical lesson in terms of relationships. Proverbs 26 and verse 18. And I know that having a sense of humor is a gift from God. It's very beneficial, and I'm so thankful my wife has a sense of humor. We just uh, are able to laugh uh, at, uh, frequently. Uh, Proverbs 26 and verse 18, however, there's a caution. As a madman who casts firebrands, arrows, and death, so is a man that deceives his neighbor and says, wasn't I kidding? Am I not in sport? So you have to be careful. I know there are practical jokes and uh, some people uh, think that's really funny, but sometimes the victims don't think it's so funny. And we have to realize that we have to have a certain level of standard and consideration of those with whom we are joking or kidding. So be very careful. Another major lesson in personal relationships is the simple key of smiling. I think most of you know that. The anonymous uh, classical poem, I presume it's called A Smile. I think you've heard it before. It costs nothing but creates much. It enriches those who receive without impoverishing those who give. It happens in a flash, and the memory of it lasts forever. None are so rich they can get along without it, and none so poor but are richer for its benefits. It creates happiness in the home, fosters goodwill in the business, and is the countersign of friends. It is rest to the weary, daylight to the discouraged, sunshine to the sad, and nature's best antidote for trouble. Yet it cannot be bought, begged, borrowed, or stolen, for it is something that is no earthly good to anybody till it is given away. If someone is too tired to give you a smile, leave one of yours, for nobody needs a smile so much as those who have none to give. And that's anonymous. So that's the classic one on a smile. 
Now, how should we learn? We've seen what we should learn in various aspects of our lives, from relationships to finances to skills, skill development. But how should we learn? What are the best ways to learn the lessons of life? At the Living Youth Camp a couple years ago, I was giving a lecture on character development. And I was pointing out how suffering helps us to develop character. And one of the campers asked, what is the easy way to learn character? Well, there is no easy way, but there is an easier way of learning than trying to learn the hard way. Let's turn to Galatians, the sixth chapter, Galatians 6, if you know that one. It's learning from the mistakes of others rather than your having to reinvent the mistake wheel. Galatians, the sixth chapter. Benjamin Franklin wrote, Experience keeps a dear school, or experience keeps a costly school, but fools will learn in no other. So hopefully you're not a fool. You want to learn from the mistakes of others and not have to learn because you're so addicted to some kind of habit or sin. Galatians 6 and verse 10, uh, verse 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. There is cause and effect. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. You know, when you read about the AIDS and uh, Africa and other places around the world, uh, the millions of orphans uh, in Africa because of AIDS, they've suffered in the flesh because they haven't been keeping the commandments of God. They've committed adultery, they've committed perversion, and I'm not just saying that in, uh, in Africa. It's uh, rampant and becoming more rampant in Asia and other areas around the world as well. But he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. It's easier to learn from others and the mistakes of others. Turn back to the book of Proverbs. There is an easier way to learn rather than suffering, although we all suffer and we all learn lasting lessons from it. But uh, here in the book of Proverbs, you notice the chapter headings or at the beginning of some of the chapters, like chapter 2. My son, if you will receive my words and hide my commandments with you. You know, there were the elders at the gate in ancient Israel. They were elders there because they had the experience of age and education and learning. And we need to learn from our elders as well. Chapter 3, my son, forget not my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. Chapter 4, Hear you children the instruction of a father and intend to know understanding. That's the easier way to learn. Not by becoming addicted to some sin. We learn from sermons and Bible studies and our personal Bible study. And then, of course, as we've announced on April 1st, the Tomorrow's World Bible Study course will go online. Mr. Meredith exhorted all of us to be praying about the open doors. Here are the announcements. I hope that you'll be praying also 
for the online uh, launch of the Tomorrow's World Bible Study course on April 1st. And we have 200 and, well, over 325,000 subscribers at this point in time. And even if a good 10 or 20% of them were to subscribe online to the Bible study course, that would be a tremendous boost for them and for the work. So again, I hope you'll be praying for that uh, launch of the Bible study course online on our website, April 1st. It's going to be advertised on our on the back page of our next Tomorrow's World magazine, the uh, March-April issue. So you'll see that advertisement there. But we can learn, and we can learn from the Living Leadership course, which uh, many of you experienced this morning, and to keep growing and to overcome and to learn new experiences. Of course, we have uh, the uh, Living Leadership course and the Bible Study course. As Winston Churchill said, in terms of educating oneself, it is a good thing for an uneducated man to read books of quotations. Of course, he had a little uh, tongue-in-cheek there, but it's a shortcut method of learning wisdom from others. We need to learn from the mistakes of others. We already saw the lessons of history from Belshazzar and King Saul. Douglas Adams, and this is from wisdomquotes.com, Douglas Adams stated, Human beings who are almost unique in having the ability to learn from the experience of others are also remarkable for their apparent disinclination to do so. Will Durant, which I quoted from earlier in his book, one of the lessons of history is that nothing is often a good thing to do and always a clever thing to say. Winston Churchill said, History will be kind to me for I intend to write it. <laughs> well, we can learn from our experiences, as we saw in Galatians, the sixth chapter, that there is cause and there is effect. I also shared with you the story of my Chevy 1951 when I was trying to set records of uh, speeding from my home in Meriden, Connecticut to the college at RPI to get back after a break and uh, I was going around a curve near Massachusetts Freeway. It was on a rural road and it was a rainy day and I had slick tires but I was pushing it. I was trying to, you know, make a new record in time getting from my home to college and I went around a curve and the slick tires just spun out and here was a milk truck coming in the other way and the milk truck won. I didn't and uh, bent my fender in, and I got cited for failure to give right of way to the milk truck because I crashed into it. <laughs> but the lesson I should have learned was, look, don't drive with slick tires on rainy roads. You shouldn't have uh, slick tires in the first place. So sometimes we have to learn the hard way. We learn from... Uh, experience that way. There are many other lessons that I would like to share with you, but as we take a look at the lessons of history, look at our own lessons that we've learned, lessons we have yet to learn, we need to pray for correction, and pray for guidance, and look at what the nations have done and what they haven't done. So we look forward to the future as 
Will and Ariel Durant wrote in their book, The Lessons of History, page 100. We should not greatly be disturbed by the probability that our civilization will die like any other. As Frederick asked his retreating troops in Cologne, would you live forever? Perhaps it is desirable that life should take fresh forms, that new civilizations and centers should have their turn. Meanwhile, the effort to meet the challenge of the rising East may reinvigorate the West. In other words, what he's saying is that you have to be philosophical about the changes of empire, the rise and fall of empires, because wars may bring up a fresh government. And we may have this stimulation because of the dangers of the East. But there is going to be a new civilization, and he doesn't know it. And many of the other historians don't know about the great civilization that is yet to come. Let's conclude with Micah 6 and verse 8. One of the great lessons that we are practicing, I pray, and if we aren't, we certainly need to. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Jonah, Micah. Micah 6 and verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the eternal require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Last week we were exhorted to be clothed with humility, as it states in 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. And God is giving us awesome lessons of truth and life. I hope we can learn those lessons. We can learn to overcome the sin of omission and the sin of commission. Uh, Paul writes about that in Romans 7, verse 19. So, brethren, let's examine ourselves for the Passover. There will be more sermons helping us to prepare in the future. But we need to know our need for Christ's shed blood. We need to know what lessons we have learned. We need to know what lessons we are now learning. And we need to know what lessons we have yet to learn. We need to fulfill our mission and our purpose in life. I hope we can all turn many to righteousness, as it tells us in Daniel 12 and verse 3. So let's prepare the church, the world, and ourselves for the coming kingdom of God. Let's look forward to the Passover and the days of unleavened bread, and let's learn the lasting lessons of life.